Hi, this is Alex Mozed, founder and CEO of Applico, and we are here on Winner Take All, where we talk about all things tech, modern monopolies, and how do you capture these network effects and these winner take all dynamics. Today, we're going to go over a, a recent research report that was published talking about what consumers are willing to pay for a lot of free platforms that you use. This is interesting in the in the debate of of is privacy a cost and how much does is privacy costs the consumer. Um, we're going to do a little platform 101 talking about what are the seven ways to solve for the chicken and egg problem, this very big challenge of getting consumers and producers and vice versa, and then continuing to do that uh, many, many, many times over. What's the true story of Amazon's marketplace origination story, right? Uh, Jeff Bezos published a letter showing that they've had GMV since I think 1997. Uh, but what was the real truth behind the marketplace back in the late 90s and how did it actually get going? We're going to take a little look at B2B as it relates to building materials and the electrical industry. And then we've done some analysis on the 70 public platform stocks in Plat, the platform ETF, looking at uh, their age, when they went public, um, what the, you know, really just how, what is the kind of duration or life cycle of these platform companies relative to things like the S&P 500? Um, MasterCard in recent news just announced they're buying Nets, a European payment company. Uh, what's that all about? We're going to dig into that. Zillow is going to announce earnings at the end of the day today, and they have a new program called Zillow Offers, which we're going to dig into, which is pretty interesting. Etsy released earnings last week and announced a few interesting new initiatives that we're going to dig into. And Match just announced earnings this morning and had a huge beat, uh, primarily on the heels of Tinder. And we're going to dig into that as well a little bit more. So let's start at the top. There's this interesting report that just came out uh, here that you can see on how much consumers are willing to pay for a lot of free apps that you would be familiar with. YouTube at the top, $4.20 a month. I mean. That's a lot. That's 50 bucks a year. And by the way, you know, when you're doing surveys and asking people how much they're willing to pay, you know, people don't like to say that they're willing to pay for something. So I would argue these are actually probably underestimated, underrepresenting what people would actually be willing to pay because I don't think people are that truthful when, when filling out this kind of information. But if you look at the roughly 15 to 20 companies on here, YouTube, Google Drive, Facebook, LinkedIn, FaceTime, Reddit, Venmo, Instagram, Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp, Twitter, Pinterest, Snapchat, Yelp, all platform companies. Which ones are not really platforms? Google Maps. I'd say Waze could kind of be a collaboration platform joined by Nick Johnson, co-author with me on the book, Modern Monopolies. Waze is kind of platform, but not Google Maps, right? Well, Waze has a lot of this user-generated content. People are basically uh, inputting you know, where police showing up. They're constantly giving their data back to the right. platform on traffic crashes, kind speed of stuff. traps, cameras. And Google Maps sucks in a lot of that data from Waze, but there's a lot less of that kind of user input on Google Maps. It's a lot more uh, they have you know, a bad government sources and private partnerships and this kind of stuff. And there's much less of a user input uh, aspect to that. Exactly. Yeah, and Google Translate, you know, that's a, a, a good linear tool, uh, but not a platform. So basically, all these platforms are free. This goes back to the whole conversation about even if these antitrust regulators successfully say that um, the tech monopolies 
are inappropriately using your your data for privacy reasons. Okay, what is the cost of abusing your data and violating privacy rules? Okay, prescribe some costs to that. Now look at this data. Look at how much consumers are willing to pay for these things that are free. And I guarantee you whatever cost <laughs> is prescribed for privacy abuses will pale in comparison to what these users are willing to pay. Well, the, the challenge with that too is that you talk about the value of your data. Your data on its own is really not worth very much. It's what Google, Facebook, and so on are able to do with that data by matching with all these other people's data. So you get back to the challenge of how much you actually, you know, if you had to pay for this data, how much are you going to pay each person? It's not going to be very much. So right. that, that's not going to make up the difference. And then what we really have here is not this kind of red herring where you are the product because it's free. You have a barter exchange, which is what this is really getting at, which is there's value to these things that you're using. You are getting them for free. And in exchange for that value of that service, you give up some data. Exactly. And last note on this, Amazon, I think, had this thing. I, I don't remember the exact details, but I saw it was like they pay $10 for your data or something like that. I don't, I don't really remember all the particulars, but it, they spent 10 bucks. I know that. And every single one of these apps, every single one of these people are saying they're willing to pay more than 10 bucks, right? Yelp at the bottom, buck 87 a month, more than 10 bucks. So basically the, again, the privacy argument that these things are horrible and antitrust and we need to break them up. It's just not going to win. So moving on. Um, Let's let's actually while we're talking about Amazon, what is the origination story on the Amazon marketplace? Nick, you know, I think a lot of people, and even in Jeff Bezos's letter, it it's a little misleading for him to say that they actually had true three P third party sellers on the marketplace in the late nineties. Why is that? Well, the the marketplace as we know it today didn't actually start until after Amazon went public, I think in about the year 2000, and then it started to launch internationally in Europe in 2001, 2002. And that marketplace, as we know it today, basically where you go on, there's the buy box, third-party sellers come in. That, that didn't start until after Amazon went public. What happened earlier, and if you remember back in the late 90s, eBay was all the rage. Everyone thought the auction model was going to dominate online. Amazon had its 1P first-party seller model, and they thought, we need to go create an auction product. So Amazon invested a lot in basically building out the technology to support this and tried to compete head to head with eBay. So they had a handful of, compared to what they have today, a handful of third-party sellers basically coming on in this Amazon auctions. More partners. Right. Well, th that was third-party. It was a marketplace, but it was like eBay, an auctions marketplace. And mm. it never really got traction mm. because they were going head to head with eBay. And eBay was the dominant market. Uh, auctions marketplace where they ended up getting traction is basically they shut down the auctions model uh, and then shifted to eventually this marketplace model, which we know today, where basically it's third party sellers selling you at a purchase price. And that has become the dominant model for buying products online, even to the point where on eBay today, 90% of the stuff that they sell is at a buy now, essentially purchase price rather than an auction. You're saying late 90s GMV that Jeff reported is really auction 3P sellers. Yeah, they had, they had a handful of you know, 3P partners and that kind of stuff. But right. in terms of what was actually a marketplace in the late 90s on Amazon, it was this Amazon auctions product. Yeah. yeah. Okay, interesting. So a lot of platforms have this challenge of, I need consumers to get producers if I'm Uber. I need customers to get drivers and vice versa. And then, especially if you have a hyper-localized network effect like an Uber, um, my drivers are only located in one location. 
then that problem continues to compound upon itself, not just in, in, in one region, but in every region. And how can you essentially hit this point of critical mass where then the network effects actually start working for you as opposed to against you? And so what we outlined uh, in the book and, and, and have written extensively about are the seven different strategies for solving the chicken and egg problem. And basically, there are three buckets to this. We started to talk about this um, on, on uh, yesterday's episode, but there's monetary subsidies. There are product features and product uh, subsidies. And then there's user sequencing and um, other kind of uh, incentives that come along with that. So the first one here is enter with significant pre-investment. So you could think about this for development platforms, like when Microsoft or Sony's PlayStation is entering a market, they will announce that we have a huge marketing budget. We have hundreds of millions of dollars that are now going to uh, boost all of these sales of our hardware. And what that's really saying is that um, we're going to juice demand for this product right. because now I can instill confidence in my my producers, which would be the uh, third-party game developers, that they can now justify making an investment to have games ready at launch for an Xbox or for a PlayStation. Otherwise, it's hard to build the confidence in producers to make that investment um, before they can actually see how much demand there is for uh, your given console in in that example. Right, so you're, you're basically guaranteeing the demand side of the equation for those producers with this strategy. Mm-hmm, exactly. So the other one here is to build a cooperative strategy. And basically what this is saying is um, how can you bring together multiple players um, in an ecosystem? The example that we've talked a lot about here is Google and what Android did with the Open Handset Alliance, where the, it was actually a multi-sided marketplace where um, there was the Android operating system, but you need the operating system for a phone to run with handset manufacturers. And so there's other players in there as well, like um, telecoms, telecoms, chip manufacturers. And so what Android was able to do is create this alliance, what, what we call this cooperative strategy, where you say, yes, at the end of the day, there are producers, which are developers. There are consumers, which are people buying a phone and then using those apps. But the cooperative strategy is then looping in other complementary players into that ecosystem as well. In this case, handset manufacturers, telecoms, chip manufacturers that are all going to then um, make Android their priority mobile operating system. Right. And if we remember uh, back in you know, 2008, 2009, iPhone had just come out. Uh, it was exclusive with AT&T, I believe, at the time. And all the other... Uh, all the other telecom companies, phone manufacturers were scared that all oh, the iPhone's going to take over everything and they didn't have a response to this. So Android basically said, all right, we'll give you the operating system. You guys are going to sell phones based on this. We're going to own the platform uh, and basically created this uh, armada of companies that were all basically anti-iPhone and Apple and then AT&T at the time who had the exclusive rights uh, to come up with a response to that. And that's, that's what Android really was. They got all these groups to work together because Google didn't want to you know, do all of that by itself. So another one here, looking at product features, kind of product subsidies, right? So classic one here is just to act as a producer. If I need to seed a marketplace from scratch and I want to capture demand, then I usually maybe don't have supply. So how could I act as a producer? How could I kind of intimate supply um, to jumpstart that initial demand? So an example that we've used many, many times over would be looking at when Apple first launched the iPhone and what are those initial apps 
iPhone was out for about a year and a half before it actually opened up to to third party app developers. But it still had the phone app, the text app, the the mail app, the calculator app, a number of key apps, Safari um, that would provide this utility to the consumer um, where Apple was able to kind of jumpstart the demand in that scenario. Um, other examples example. would be Uber, yep. where Uber um, would enter a market and maybe didn't have drivers initially, but they would go and actually contract drivers um, and probably pay them hourly to then be the initial drivers in a market so that they could start booking rides. That's what they did in San Francisco. When they initially started, basically, they just paid drivers to sit in downtown San Francisco and then said, hey, look at this app. You can go book a black car on demand at any time and it's because the cars were being paid to sit there. It wasn't until much later that the kind of true marketplace model came in when they had enough demand, they could start to sign up uh, groups of drivers and individual drivers. And then really with UberX, of course, that took mm-hmm. off basically anyone with a car that mm-hmm. could uh, operate got uh, onto the platform. So the other one here is an evolution strategy. And what we mean by that is um, very often what you see is there are existing complementary ecosystems that you would love, your platform would greatly benefit from or shares a lot of synergies with the existing, with this other ecosystem. So um, there's been a lot of press and we've written about it in the book about how in the early days of Airbnb, they would go and then post on Craigslist to get um, demand. They would post their listings uh, on uh, Craigslist to get people who want to book those listings. And then they would also try to capture supply. They would um, message the people that have posted listings to rent a, um, you know, their apartment on Craigslist. Uh, and then they would message them to come and post that um, on Airbnb. And basically what you're doing is you're tapping into another ecosystem and trying to siphon that off to your ecosystem. Right. Well, um, you're more focused on a particular type of thing or producer, whereas Craigslist does a lot of stuff. Airbnb particularly did. Uh, you know, home rentals and, you know, partial home rentals and basically focused on that particular subset of consumers and producers and really uh, was able to siphon off a lot of that demand and provide more services around that now, to those customers. The interesting thing with this is that um, we've seen a lot of stories about competing platforms doing this to each other's networks. Mm-hmm. What you're also seeing is that these platform conglomerates, when they really become a conglomerate by definition. Now what they're doing is layering a platform business on top of another platform business. So if you look at Uber, Uber is essentially doing an evolution strategy internally. Google, Facebook, Amazon, all of the big tech monopolies are doing this all the time. They have entire incubation labs where they have teams and teams of teams of people and their whole business or their whole directive is to how can I siphon off this existing either consumers or producers and channel them into a new platform business. So we've talked a lot about how Uber has done this with Uber Eats and now Uber Freight to then take one or both sides of their existing ecosystem for Uber Eats. That would be the the consumers and then the drivers that are then helping to fulfill those uh, delivery orders in a three-sided marketplace for Uber Eats. So we've seen this where it's very competitive and the platforms are doing it to each other. And we've also seen this now where the platforms, as they get to very large scale, are doing this internally and actually using an evolution strategy to to try and become a platform conglomerate. Um, so a couple strategies that blend together actually both of these activities would be to create a singular double-sided marquee strategy, right? So um, who are the high-value users that when you attract these users, 
they are then going to kind of energize a broader base of similar users. Right. How so would you explain it, on that? If I'm Twitter, do I need uh, celebrity users to join? Because if I'm a celebrity user, I'm going to have millions of people follow me. Whereas, you know, if some random guy on the street signs up, he might get four. Like when so it's Microsoft, a big difference in the value of a specific user. And then, yeah, in Microsoft. With uh, Mixer just did Taking Ninja yes, from absolutely. Twitch. Oh, now I'm going to get this very high powered producer. And not only could that get me a lot of other producers, but it could also get me a lot of Ninja's followers and consumers. Exactly. Right. And that's it, the double it, it's side. It's basically acknowledging that certain users or types of users are more valuable to building the network than others and really focusing on acquiring those users first. Mm -hmm. and in some cases, you know, paying them directly in terms of partnerships, as I'm sure Microsoft is doing with Ninja. Mm -hmm. And and on a similar strain, but a little bit different, then there's how can I target a single user group that actually fulfills both my consumer and producer functions? And we've written extensively about Etsy doing this, yep. um, where they realize, oh, you know, I have I have producers that are creating products and I have consumers that want to get these handmade handcraft products. But then they started to look at the data and they said, wow. Some of my most avid consumers and customers are actually my creators. Right. And how could I just really laser in on getting a strong creator following? Because not only are they going to give me supply, but then they're also going to go and buy and give me demand on my marketplace. Etsy actually started by basically looking at and messaging people on craft goods forums. So it was you know, typical kind of uh, basic forum on a website or like a Reddit uh, subreddit and they would go in and talk to these folks and found that a lot of the people that were actually buying stuff were the same people that were selling stuff so there's a lot of overlap there and rather than having to go get all right let's get the supply on and then get a bunch of these consumers just put them together and let them buy from each other and then you can start to bring in more and more demand as you get that supply on there yeah. the last one is probably my favorite because it's just it's the easiest and and just most repeatable trick in the book and that's what we call providing single user utility. That's what we call, um, basically what you see is that the technology is a commodity and every platform will happily give away the technology for free if they can get access to the ecosystem. And so we've talked about OpenTable, how in the, in the old days of OpenTable, OpenTable was really just a kind of like inventory management system for restaurants so that they could manage you know, their bookings and, and their seating charts and all that kind of stuff. Right. It was all it was all done even at top restaurants when Open Table started, again back in the kind of the dot com era. Pen and paper. So there wasn't really any computer systems or even kind of like legacy systems for managing this stuff. It was let's take reservations. Someone calls us up, we write it down on a chart with tables and that kind of stuff. And you know, Open Table basically said this is silly. Let's make yep. a software system to do this. Uh, once we get that in all, a lot of the top restaurants in San Francisco where they started then we can open up the reservation side. Even if the, the reservation side, side yeah. never comes, you still have this tool. So right. you're going to join because you want access to the yep. tool. And you can subsidize the cost of the tool because you know that you're going to actually monetize the transaction, the core transaction. Instagram did this where it was just really, if you remember Instagram, Instagram is really just a photo editing app that would let right. you put filters, filters. And then they added in the social network content platform dynamic. Um, in recent news and what you're going to see Google do with Android Automotive is exactly this and Waymo. So Waymo is Google's uh, autonomous driving technology. And what, what Google is doing is using Waymo as the hook, as what we would call linear hook, the single user utility to say, hey, um, car manufacturers, 
you your autonomous driving technology is horrible compared to ours. And but don't worry, we will give you access to Waymo if you install our operating system in all of your cars. And then I make money on the transaction connecting the software developers, this community of third party developers that will obviously be ready, willing and waiting to come onto Android Automotive. And then they're going to be able to monetize all the services that are going into the connected vehicle. It's genius and it's going to be awesome. And there's nothing that these OEMs are doing about it, unfortunately. But, you know, I got to give Google a lot of credit for really crushing single user utility. Where where they've had a lot of success, too, are those smaller OEMs. So not the you know GMs of the world and Toyotas of the world. It's the smaller guys that don't have their own big autonomous driving units that they're already working on their own technology. They don't have their own, uh, you know, kind of operating system for the vehicle that they're creating. It's really these guys that they don't have it. So Google says, look, we'll give it to you. Just come put it in your vehicle and you get all this stuff. Right. Exactly. So there's been a lot, you know, I think everyone's probably heard. um, There's a lot of reports uh, like this report here. Technology is killing off corporate America. Average lifespan of companies is under 20 years now. Um, the average age of an S&P 500 company is under 20 years, down from 60 years in the 1950s. Whoa, kind of scary, right? Um, here's what's interesting is, um, so we analyzed of the 70 companies in Platt, when were they founded? Um, when did they go public? You know, so what's the average age? What's the, what's the median date that they, they IPO'd and these kinds of things? And um, here's what we found. So. The median year founded uh, was 2000. The average age was 28 and a half years. So age average versus median, um, which is really interesting if you think about it, because the average age of an S&P 500 company is now sub 20 years. But the average age of a public platform company is 28 years. I think you have some probably on either ends of the spectrum that are are skewing that fairly heavily. Uh, you have the Visas, Mastercards, yes, and American Amexes Express of the world, very and you know, New York Stock Exchange, those kinds Sony, of companies yes. that have been around for a long time and have been very successful. Richie part of, Brothers. But part of why they have been around for a long time and so successful is this platform model. And they mm-hmm. found a way in the you know, uh, 20th century world to make that model work very well. And then in the 21st century model, they'll still going very strong. So that's why if you look at the median, 2000 right. okay 19 years right it's pretty much it's actually pretty much right there yep um you, you're gonna have a lot more I, I would guess that that median and average will come down a little bit over the next few years you have a lot more of these platform companies from this sort of latest uh late 2000s and the early 20 teens kind of wave of companies that are, that are, going are now public. going public yeah so maybe that'll come down. but it's kind of interesting that it's actually similar somewhat similar lifespan to me right yeah that and and guess which guess which business model is stronger and better and I would argue has a much longer longevity, platforms right. right? So the the lifespan is coming down for the S and P five hundred uh, companies, which are predominantly linear and much more traditional, not platforms. I think we said there are twenty one um, platforms in the S and P five hundred, right? But and now it's it's somewhat similar to the age and lifespan of the platform companies just in general not just the ones in the sp 500 we can cover that on the next episode um but i think these are just much stronger companies so median year of ipo was 2011 so 
um, again, there are these companies are still so new, yep. seven, eight years now um, from when they've IPO'd. The, we don't have all of the latest platform companies that have IPO'd this year or will be IPOing this year in the ETF yet. It'll be rebalanced. Um, I think at the end of the year and then and then those those companies will get in there. But it's still just so new or so early in terms of when these companies have IPO'd um, separate from the ones and really the ones that are in the S&P 500 are actually the really much older ones like the American Expresses and the MasterCards and the Visas that have right. been around for a long time. So that was pretty interesting to me. On the note of MasterCard, MasterCard recently just I think maybe today announced they're buying Nets, a payment that it's a division of this uh, payment unit for $3 billion. It's their largest acquisition ever. And, and MasterCard has talked a lot about how they want to get more into um, payments, B2B payments. We spoke yesterday about how the Fed is a platform based on its payment platform with Fed wires, but with the wire system and all these things. And that banks recently have created this thing called the Clearinghouse, which is actually a you know private bank consortium funded competitor basically to the Fed's wire and, and payment platform system. Um, and what this, I think, is just continuing on that trend for essentially kind of subverting the Fed. And the Fed has just been slow. They well, really I haven't updated this. I wouldn't say it's necessarily subverting. I think the, the Fed's idea is we need to provide a public alternative. So I think that the you know the private one exists and is functioning today. I think the Fed's going to take a little while to get to theirs, 2024, 20, mm -hmm. 25, something like that. But I think that the basically the Fed says we need to provide a competing platform. I think what you're seeing with uh, MasterCard here, basically there's two things. One is B2B payments, which is big, and the other is cardless payments. So that this uh, company allows them to do is direct account-to-account -account payments for B2B. Right. You've seen this it's really a B2B growing, focus. Uh, in a big way, internationally, basically cardless payment systems, uh, enabling direct payment transactions that are instantaneous uh, and settle right away. And uh, this is a big move in that direction for MasterCard and B2B, where I think they have a lot of growth opportunities. Lots of growth in B2B payments. Um, the, the, the Nets business still has their merchant processing, so like credit card terminals and, and other stuff like that. But um, this business definitely has the network effect dynamic. Um, that uh, that that Mastercard is is looking to capture. So on the trend of B two B, let's talk about a couple B two B segments here. So starting with uh, building materials, building materials, B two B distribution has a variety of different verticals. Building materials um, being one of them, in the U S has over a hundred billion dollars in value and throughput every year. Um, there's a lot of fragmentation in in the building material industry that covers all of the products that are going into homes or new construction jobs, also lumber um, and all the related supplies that um, are helping to build the homes and, and buildings of today. Um, Amazon has not gotten into building materials in any kind of serious way recently. Right. It's definitely a heavy logistic fulfillment type of industry, which I think has kept out a lot of the Amazon, Walmart, Alibaba, um, and eBay type of uh, tech platforms from coming into the space. There are things that are on the fringe and more commoditized, more pack and shippable um, in building materials, right. but the large majority of it is definitely heavier, which is just harder for them to penetrate from a logistics and fulfillment standpoint. 
What are the other things that you've been looking at in this space, Nick? Yeah, I think the the part of the reason you haven't seen Amazon get into this, it's an industry that has a lot of local network effects because of that uh, heavy shipping component. Basically, if I'm a building materials distributor, I typically only ship the heavy stuff within you know, maybe at most a couple hundred mile radius of a distribution store. Mm -hmm. Because once you start to get further away, the further and further you get, the higher that, fulf that uh, fulfillment cost is going to go up. So if, for example, well, there's a lot of these kind of e-commerce type websites for building materials, if I try to order something like 500 pounds of or 500 square feet of uh, siding and I want to get that delivered, the fulfillment cost can be upwards of 20% of the actual cost of the good. And that's prohibitive for making that model kind of work because they're shipping it from you know centralized warehouses that's too far away from where I am. And it just doesn't make uh, unit economics just don't make sense. Mm -hmm. So what you need to do in a lot of these more heavy material industries in B2B, which doesn't fit the Amazon model of you know having one warehouse that can serve a big area, uh, is really you need to have a lot more local supply. So you need to get up a lot of these smaller distributors, of which there's a lot, and really figure out how you consolidate them together uh, into a marketplace and leverage their local fulfillment capabilities rather than having everything run through a more centralized kind of hub and spokes model. Mm -hmm. You've seen a lot of these businesses pop up in emerging markets. So you have a number of these things popping up in China and India in markets like that. I think a little less so in the United States, where I think you've seen Supply Hog, which never got a lot of traction and got, I think, acquired uh, for a small amount. But uh, definitely see a big opportunity for distributors to get into this because they have the footprint, they have the customers, and they have the tools that they could offer. Speaking of kind of single user utility in terms of things like financing, inventory management, tracking deliveries that a lot of these smaller shops just aren't going to have. So there's yeah. a lot you could offer to bring these things, these smaller shops on board and really extend the footprint right. of what you're able to serve. And I think, you know, a couple of things. So we, what we have seen in the industry, we've seen a lot of consolidation. Yep. We've seen a lot of the mid to large size players gobbling up the small to mid size players. Right. We've even seen large players gobble up large players. Yep. Um, CRH, which owned Allied in the U.S., that was sold maybe a year or two ago now for a handsome sum. Um, and so you've seen a lot of consolidation at the top of the industry. And I think I think one of the reasons that companies like um, a CRH and and which is a European holding company and and they also do a lot of manufacturing. I think yep. you're seeing a number of of companies that are in the manufacturing space of building materials. That maybe also had a distribution arm that was built up over the decades. And they're kind of saying, you know, I feel like some disruption is coming. I feel like there's definitely some new marketplace type of models on the horizon. And I just don't want to play in that game. I want to stick to making products and the distribution businesses were kind of a bolt on over the years anyway. Yeah. And so I'll let that stuff go if I get a nice price. And by the way, they're getting nice prices. So, I mean, if I'm a small mid-sized player, and I could exit right now, I'd probably exit, right? Take me out um, of this because there's going to be a lot of shakeup. And I think there's a lot of older owners. There's a lot of just older folks that have been in the space and change is hard and challenging. So there's going to be change. It's just a matter of when it comes. It's inevitable because there is fragmentation. There's a lack of pricing transparency. The buying right. process is very arduous. Right. If I'm, if I'm a, a general contractor and I'm trying to get materials, it's not clear to me how much something's going to cost, what's available, without having to it call up a, a bunch of, of folks. It takes a lot of time. And there's no you know, easy way for me to get that information. And a marketplace right. really could come in and solve and that And I think the well. large incumbent distributors would actually find that a lot of these marketplaces start at the bottom of the market. And they might be seen internally as somewhat 
competitive or cannibalistic to the core business, maybe in two or three years after the marketplace is going. But at least initially, I bet there's a lot of small contractors in the uh, LBM industry that are not even on the radar of right. the large they're not, distributors. They're not the kind of customers that they're just from uh, an economic standpoint set up to serve. Right. Those customers are not well served by the current sort of large distributor system. Right. Those people in particular would love a marketplace. And love you, a could, marketplace. you could basically have this be accretive, certainly in the early stages. At least stages. in the early days, while you prove it out right. and get validation of it. So another B2B distribution vertical here is the electrical distribution space. Um, we've published some research in the past on the level of fragmentation in the industry and the still there there are large B2B electrical distributors, um, but they don't account for enough of a consolidation in the industry to prevent a marketplace from coming in. So it's a $160 billion a year industry. That number might be a little low. This is from a year or two ago. The 20 largest companies in B2B electrical distribution only account for about 40% of the overall market share. There are uh, over 14,000 companies um, that are less than $10 million a year doing electrical distribution. That screams heavy, 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 heavy fragmentation. And whenever there's heavy fragmentation, that is ripe for a B2B marketplace to come into the space. Um, what are some of the areas within the electrical industry that you would say from a, from a product catalog standpoint are particularly ripe or commoditized for a marketplace to take advantage of that? Yeah, I think that, I mean, if you have to look no further than Amazon business, this kind of electrical and supplies is a big area for them already. Lighting which is a big area of electrical, is a huge category on Amazon, one of the largest and fastest growing if you look at number of sellers and products uh, in the Amazon business catalog. Uh, then you also have stuff like what? Wires, connectors, uh, all these kinds of small products, smaller motors uh, that Amazon does that kind of pack and ship stuff very well. Uh, it's mm -hmm. very easy for them to ship that to a wide range of places. They have a lot of third-party sellers already on the platform for mm -hmm. this. And uh, the, the, if I'm a B2B distributor selling these kinds of products, what is my unique advantage? These things are fairly commoditized. They're fairly standardized. Uh, Amazon's going to have more of them. And they're likely, if they don't already, going to have them at a better price because they have a lot of these smaller sellers competing against each mm -hmm. other. Yeah, I think if, if um, again, I don't own a B2B electrical distribution business, but if I did, I would say it's got to be at least 40% of their SKUs in their product catalog are what I would call pack and ship right. and probably more, but again, I'm not in it, but at least if it's at least 40% are pack and ship, which I would say puts you in a pretty commoditized bucket, fits almost exactly into the Amazon fulfillment and distribution model. That's not a good thing. We did do analysis on some of the large distributors uh, a couple of years ago as Amazon business was starting to get traction. And that, that percentage is roughly right in terms of what we saw in terms of pack and ship type of items, commoditized items, and then also layering in sort of spot buy behavior. Mm -hmm. This is a big part, if I'm a electrical, uh, you know, an industrial distributor, this is a big part of my business. And just doing e-com is not going to solve uh, going up against a big marketplace like Amazon. Right, because, because the value prop of a B2B marketplace is twofold. One, you get the widest product catalog selection, right? Because I have all these third-party sellers, they're putting in their inventory. I'm going to be able to add many more SKUs than I would if I literally have to buy the product, have it on my balance sheet, have it in a warehouse, handle the fulfillment and logistics of it. But no, if you get that ecosystem, you're going to have a wider product, cat product catalog selection and you're going to just have more competitive prices. And what do customers want? The best price 
and the widest selection of choice. When it comes to value add service, which has typically been the response from the MRO, the electrical distributors yep. that are having to talk to analysts on earnings call and explain why Amazon isn't as big of a threat as it actually is. Um, usually they use the value add service as a reason why. And, and one interesting story about what Amazon business won recently, is Stanford University. Stanford University um, is supposed to be the, a hallmark example of a large customer that needs a lot of high touch value add services, right? Which is supposed to be a hallmark client for large B2B distributors yep. um, as to why that's defensible against an Amazon. Well, okay, how did Amazon penetrate this? Um, Stanford has like 20 different colleges. They all have all their own different procurement requirements. And Amazon has all the tools, procurement tools, they said cut down 50% of the labor costs to comply with all the procurement tools. They could then segment out to all the different um, departments within Stanford. That was kind of point one. Point two is that um, Stanford has all these requirements about sourcing products locally. So this is, this is where they're presented a problem um, where you would talk about value at service. So um, Amazon basically said, well, if you can't find, say, a minority owned product or a, um, or a locally sourced product on the marketplace, we're going to give you one or two people and you send what you need to them, and then they're going to go source it and put it on the marketplace, and now you can fulfill your order. And, and by the way, Amazon has filtering on its marketplace for those kinds of things. So if you have right. specific buying criteria saying you need to buy a certain amount from minority-owned businesses or women-owned businesses, these kinds of things are available in terms of uh, B2B buying experience on Amazon business. Yes. And so I know some, some uh, equity research analysts that when they learned about this Stanford University win for Amazon, they started to actually... Um, take out from from their earnings analysis that the defensibility attributed to the value add service that right. large distributors were touting as a moat, basically from a marketplace. But um, again, it, it, to me, it's more of a question of how much of the electrical distribution industry does a B two B marketplace own or control? Is it more like a thirty forty percent? Is it more like a sixty seventy percent? It's going to be one or the two, and it's just a matter of um, at what level of scale and over what level of timeline. But not only is it inevitable, it's actually already happening. You already right. have Amazon. You already have eBay business, um, Alibaba, um, and I think Walmart is now pushing into B2B, and electrical is definitely going to be on that list of things. So there's a threat, but there's also a huge opportunity for electrical distributors to take advantage of this. So. Okay, let's keep moving here. Zillow. Zillow, if you don't know it, it's a great um, platform that you can find all different sorts of home information, uh, real estate purchase information. Right. Um, and we would classify it as a service marketplace. Right, or con connecting you basically with uh, real estate agents who can help, find, help you find a house. Yes. So the, the main thing on the, the consumer and producer on the consumer side, basically, you have someone looking to buy a house. On the producer side, you have real estate agents. The platform basically connects the two together. Yeah, so service marketplace in that regard. What, what Zillow announced, Zillow is announcing earnings at the end of the day today. Um, I think they're going to beat, and here's why. So Zillow last quarter announced this thing called Zillow Offers, which is direct home sales. And they've just announced, just as of uh, maybe yesterday, um, they've opened in their 15th market, and they're expanding this rapidly. What is Zillow Offers? Zillow Offers is basically a linear 
program. And so what I, what we love with platforms are, it's not just platform. The best place for a platform to be is a hybrid of platform and linear. And when you can figure out how to put the two business models together, that's really when you're the strongest. That's an Amazon with 1P linear selling and white label products and 3P third party sellers. It's an Apple creating the phone and, and the hardware, but then having the ecosystem of third party developers, right? This is Zillow's linear business model where they're saying, hey, if I put a Zillow offer price on your home, you can just go in and say, sure, I'll take that money. Pay me. I'm going to sell you my house, Zillow. And so now Zillow is using all of the data and machine learning and intelligence that it has to be able to predict um, if I was to buy this house at this price, I have a pretty good likelihood that I could flip it, maybe do some light improvements on the house and then make a good um, make a good profit on that. It, there, there's, isn't there a big startup? I forget the name. Does this for cars. Right. It does this for, there's another one that's doing this in homes as well, but they don't have the marketplace to go along with it. Mm. So their, their access to data and ability to actually, you know, support this kind of business uh, and get the cash flow they need to continue if, say, there's a downturn. Open door. Open door. That's yeah. right. Yep. Uh, I was going to say next door, but and I knew they, that was the social They formed a, an alliance with Redfin. So I think Redfin should probably just go buy that business. Right. Very, very similar idea, except here, uh, Zillow's home growing this rather than basically partnering. They're or doing it on their own. Open right. Door has raised $1.5 billion. But what you got to keep in mind is they're using that $1.5 billion to actually fuel the, they need the equity capital to do the purchases. You know, it's kind of like the lending marketplaces that would raise a $500 million debt round, but they're right, using it's like the raising, debt. It's raising a fund basically to go yes. and actually operate You're the business. You're essentially raising a fund. Right. And I, and I bet if we were actually look at the cap table of an open door, it'd probably be split out like that. I'm, you know, I'm raising this capital to kind of give you a return on the capital right. as opposed to I'm using Equity this capital. capital to acquire customers, um, build out sales teams, you know, invest in tech and IP and these kinds of things, very yep. different purposes. So I, I, I actually think probably open door could be still acquired at a, at a decent sum uh, for Redfin, which, which is also in Platt, Redfin and Zillow, um, and, and, a, and a, basically a Zillow competitor. So I think Zillow will be, we'll see, I'm right or not, shortly. Um, Etsy. Etsy came out with earnings last week, and, um, and the CEO was recently talking that he thinks this is their breakthrough quarter. And one of the big reasons why, or these a few different reasons, I think the biggest reason is shipping. We were talking mm-hmm. yesterday about, and many times, the killer app for product marketplaces is shipping. We've seen this with Amazon, two-day, now one-day shipping. Etsy is now rolling out a program to say, if you buy something, uh, if you have an order over $35, we'll give you free shipping. The sellers have kind of been complaining about that. And I saw some surveys of sites saying, hey, you should, you know, <laughs> do you think it's good? Do you think this will be good for Etsy if they offer free shipping on orders over $35? Absolutely. If they <laughs> offer free shipping on orders of $35, is that a good thing for Etsy and juicing demand and getting customers to purchase? It's just one less kink in the purchase flow, and it's entirely the right decision to make. I think the challenge for Etsy, similar to eBay, is they don't have the level of fulfillment and the warehouse infrastructure. They're they not they storing don't have these products. Fulfillment as a service the exactly. way that an Amazon fulfillment does. So doing the actual free shipping is just... You know, you have to use a UPS, a FedEx, one of these it makes other it much more expensive carriers. to do that. Yeah, it's just much more challenging. Um, so, last topic here for us today is everyone's favorite dating app, 
Tinder, owned by Match Group, owned by Barry Diller from IAC. Barry, you're a genius. Okay. Match Group is up way up today, even though the rest of the markets are actually absolutely tanking. Um, but Match Group is up. Why is Match Group up? Basically because of Tinder. Match Group owns Match.com and other online dating websites. Um, matches in the ETF. So basically the reason why for the for the big beat is that they had originally forecast a million new users, subscriber or new users um, for the year of 2019. They've now upped that expectation to 1.6 million and really attributing that large beat to Tinder. Makes sense. It's just the mobile version of a match.com. It's really the dominant dating platform today. And I think the big thing here is that they launched Tinder Lite, um, which is on a lot of like Southeast Asian countries, South American countries, much a lighter version for Android. It uses a lot less data. If you've, if you've ever used Tinder, uh, full disclosure, I met my fiance on Tinder, so it worked wow, for some we people. we have a true live Tinder story right uh, here. Swiping, you get a lot of pictures basically that are being downloaded on your phone. It takes a lot of data. So a light version, <laughs> a light version of it is going to be much better in emerging markets where oh, data is really yeah. a prohibitive cost. So it's a good move by Tinder. You've seen a lot of apps like Facebook has a light Facebook light that it uses in emerging markets. Yep. It's really a key thing to being successful in these yep. kinds of markets. And look, it's definitely a winner take all market, right? I mean, Tinder, if one competitor kind of slightly m might be able to break out from the crowd, then they just buy them. And so it's absolutely a winner take all market. Well, what you see is there's a lot of, and this is part of what Match Group has, a lot of these niche markets that go after particular types of users uh, or, you know, a particular, uh, you know, subsets of users based on identity, uh, you know, ethnicity, these kinds of things where they have a lot of these subset groups. But if you're looking at kind of the generalist marketplace, Tinder is definitely the dominant one today. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, and on that note, Nick met his fiance on Tinder. So um, happy Wednesday, everyone. And, um, you know, we'll talk to you soon.